0: Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be starting um, a sermon series where I'm going to be teaching through the book of Galatians. Uh, It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time uh, because I think Galatians, for me, more and more, uh, the lessons that Galatians teaches become, for me, something that I appreciate more, are more challenging to me. And in the past year, I've seen my need for the lessons that the book of Galatians teaches. So I've just been studying and reflecting on Galatians a lot in the past year. And it seemed like through that study that this would also be something that would be very helpful for us uh, as a local church um, to talk about as well. I think Galatians is, from my limited experience in my very small estimation, would probably have to be the letter that is most underappreciated of all the letters written to the churches, If you read through Galatians, you start to kind of see concepts like circumcision and, you know, whether or not to keep the law of Moses. And it's like, well, I mean, we're not really dealing with a struggle with keeping the law of Moses anymore or having an issue with the existence of the Jewish nation as it was in this time frame. And so you may just kind of know some points from Galatians, you know, fruit of the spirit. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Um, in the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. So you know, like, those tidbits, those, like, important statements in Galatians. But as far as seeing the utility of the book of Galatians, I think it's very underappreciated. Another thing about Galatians that I think makes it challenging is it has doctrinal sections within the book that the language and the way that the points are made is just challenging. So Galatians 3 for me has been one of the more challenging chapters of the Bible to study and understand, but has also been one of the most rewarding. And uh, I feel like it's, it's really helped me have an anchoring point of faith and my relationship with God. So ultimately, these issues of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, the, the challenge and the stage that is set by the problems within these churches, highlight Principles of freedom and slavery, spirit and flesh, pride, humility, uh, aspects of our relationship with God that are, that are heavily highlighted by issues that don't seem to be re- relevant, that are actually incredibly relevant, right? So I hope that through study that these things will be borne out. I think a summary of Galatians, and we'll, we'll see this through the beginning of the book, that a summary of Galatians is embracing the freedom of the gospel, I think what we're going to see in Galatians is this letter deals more with what it means to be free in Christ and what it means to be enslaved apart from Christ, more in more grit and in more reality than any other book of the New Testament. So that's something we're going to see more and more as we go through Galatians is just how important it is to understand we are free in Christ. But embracing that freedom and protecting that freedom, developing that freedom, that is where so much of our growth in Christ is. The beginning of the book deals with jealousy. And so we'll, we'll see that more and more as well through the book of Galatians, that this letter has an incredibly frantic tone to it. I've heard the book of Galatians described like a bomb. You know, Paul, through this letter, this is what I would call like a go for broke kind of conversation. This isn't something where Paul is just teaching them information they need to hear so that they will have more grounding in truth. Paul is passionate. He's urgent. He's desperate. Paul is pained by the condition that the Galatians are in. He's in turmoil. And again, a word that I would use that I'll be using again in this lesson is there, there is a frantic tone in the book of Galatians, like a kind of tone that is distinct from other letters. So let's start with verses 1 through 5 and setting the stage for... Uh, how Paul kind of lays a groundwork of our freedom in the gospel. And like all epistles, I think some of the initial statements made in every letter to all the churches, they all set the stage for themes that are going to be developed in the letter. So we'll read verses 1 through 5 again and talk more about that. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. By the way, we're going to be only in Galatians uh, in this letter. We'll jump around a little bit. We'll try to stick with just these first 10 verses as much as possible. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. One of the things that is relevant in this letter is Paul contrasts the influence or the appeal of reputation and peer pressure, even among brethren or those who he would call false brethren, compared to the appeal of Christ's authority. So notice in verse 1, Paul an apostle, and there's this focused emphasis in verse 1 that is highlighted a little more in Galatians Compared to other letters to churches, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man. So the appeal that Paul is going to be making is not based on some reputation he's developed for himself, not because Paul is well educated, not because Paul has established so many different churches, and so, wow, if anybody knows what they're talking about, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. No, Paul's appeal is simply that he has received a very special role. And because of receiving that role, this is, in a sense, very personal to him. Because how God has chosen to deliver the gospel is not just through the agency of words that are just written down necessarily, but through living men, apostles, who didn't just teach and believe the right things, but they themselves were representatives and embodiments of the message. So you have to imagine Paul was the one who taught these Christians He would have been the one to go through the Galatian region and kind of like start the churches here. And you imagine as time is going on, you know, that Paul realizes that the Galatian churches don't want to communicate with him anymore. Don't have the same attitude that they once had toward him. Look at chapter 4. And we'll delve delve a little bit more into what's on the board there in a second. Notice in chapter 4, look at verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So imagine the uncomfortable situation this puts Paul in, right? Knowing that the Galatians, you know, Paul's fallen out of favor with them. They're not really interested in associating with them anymore. But knowing that the reason why their attitude towards Paul has changed is not because they don't like Paul's opinions or whatever else. It's because they don't like what he represents. And so Paul representing the message has to solve this problem of the reason we're at conflict with each other now and that I'm potentially your enemy now is because who I am and what I stand for stands in direct conflict to where you've gone, and now where you are standing. Look at chapter 2, verse 6, to kind of get into this idea of Paul contrasting the influence of reputation and peer pressure. So chapter 2, verse 6, when Paul is talking about going to Jerusalem, having to talk with the Christians there about, hey, are you teaching that circumcision is necessary to Gentiles in order for them to be saved? Chapter 2, verse 6, But from those who are of high reputation, and I think he's dealing with there, the other apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows show partiality. Well, those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me. So Paul's not saying, oh, the other apostles, like who they are, that doesn't make any difference. No, it's that Paul's saying that the reputation that they have, whether it be Peter, James, or someone like Apollos, Just because somebody has accumulated for themselves a high reputation among brethren does not mean that's the same thing as having authority from Christ, right? And so Paul noticed that what the other apostles are teaching, what he's teaching, it all aligns and is the same thing. And Paul was not going to modify the teaching he received from Christ to fit a man-made agenda. Look at verses 11 and 12. But when Cephas, that would be Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that would be Jews from Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So again, Paul is going to contrast through this letter what the influence of Christ and the cross looks like, the nature of that appeal, compared to the appeal of, well, this brother, brother so-and-so, you know, is so well well known among the brethren, or brother so-and-so says this, or brother so-and-so does this. It's like, well, what does scripture say, right? Because to have a high reputation, even among brethren, doesn't mean that everything you do and everything you teach is all of a sudden from the authority of Christ. And the danger of peer pressure And so, even Peter, who was an apostle and would have had a very high reputation among brethren, Peter was not exempt from being vulnerable to the appeal of peer pressure, right? And so, I think Paul is trying to illuminate the Galatian churches that just because somebody of reputation, somebody who may claim to have reputation or authority, comes to you, if they're contradicting what they've already heard from Paul, that is not to be considered an authority to influence what they believe to be true doctrinally. And everything Paul writes is oriented around verse three. Paul says some pretty direct things in Galatians, um, chapter three, verse one, "You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was public, publicly portrayed as crucified. He tells them that they've been severed from Christ. He tells them that those who are troubling them, he wishes that they would just cut themselves off and mutilate themselves. But why does Paul use severity in this letter? It's ultimately for the goal of peace, grace and peace. Because there are times in our relationships where we need to boldly acknowledge where there's an absence of peace. And I don't just mean like, you know, physical calamity or like I feel turmoil because financially I'm having some trouble or my relationship with whoever is having trouble. I mean between us and God. That there are times when we need to also have go for broke conversations like Paul has with the Galatians where we just have to be willing to acknowledge where problems are, where peace is being lost, to re-establish the peace that is centered around Christ and the grace that comes through him and from him. So everything that Paul is writing, when he in verse six goes right into, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him, he's writing that on the basis of reestablishing peace that's been lost, right? So everything he says is oriented around grace and peace as the end goal. And who God is and what he's done for us sets the stage for the, the frantic tone throughout this letter. Notice in verse four, Um, That this grace and peace is something from God the Father, from Jesus Christ as Lord. But in verse 4, notice this, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Think about American history. How do you feel about America's past with slavery, kidnapping, abuse, racism, those comfortable things and if you think about like specific people like politically who had a big role to play in you know liberation from slavery on a political level a national level when you hear speeches by those people is it calm are they just like telling you the information or is there like a frantic tone is there a direness to the appeal that they make right I think a problem is we look at the slavery in the world in a totally different way that we see enslavement to Satan. Enslavement to the flesh, the ideologies of the flesh, enslavement to people. Paul treats the danger that the Galatians are in, he treats it in a frantic way because he recognizes in verse 4 a great reality that Jesus went on a rescue mission. And as we remembered in the Lord's Supper, God went for broke himself. He sacrificed his only son. He paid an unfathomable cost that really, when we remember the Lord's Supper every week, it's because what we recognize about the magnitude that Jesus gave himself, that God gave him for us, even our greatest appreciation to the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice is a thread on the tapestry and depth of glory of what God did. Why is Paul so frantic? Because we've been rescued from slavery. And the Galatian churches were not only in danger of being enslaved all over again, they were actively choosing to be enslaved all over again. So notice this in chapter 2, verse 4. I want to show you some thematic statements that are just expounded on and repeated again and again. Chapter 2, verse 4. And again, just the urgency that this is a matter of freedom and enslavement. And Paul treats this with the urgency that we would treat, the the passion that we would feel if in our culture people were trying to bring back slavery as it happened in America uh, ages ago. Chapter 2, verse 4. But it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. And this is when they're dealing with conversations about circumcision, keeping the law of Moses. And Paul recognized that this is a matter that relates to our freedom in Christ and enslavement and captivity back into sin. Look at chapter four, verses seven through nine. Chapter four, seven through nine. And this this flows from verse one, um, but we'll pick it up in verse seven. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, as he continues on this theme. Chapter 5, 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And look further in chapter 5 again in verse 13. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So again, this is a matter of life and death, freedom and slavery, and this again gives context, it sets the stage for the tone of the letter. And this is one of the really challenging things that the book of Galatians confronts us with. When you look to the cross, Jesus is suffering the outcome of his suffering the attitude he had within his suffering the purpose the resolve do you see freedom do you see liberation and do you see everything else outside of that as enslavement what galatians confronts us with is the cross is the anthem of liberation from sin liberation from the flesh liberation from seeking to please people and being ens- enslaved being bound by human opinion as we'll see at the end of the lesson we need to see the cross and all it represents as liberation and freedom and you look at the last part of the statement in verse five to whom be the glory forevermore amen the cross rearranges and corrects one of our most fundamental problems it's a failure to assign proper glory to god and maybe to summarize that in more practical terms, I would define like giving glory to God or glory in general as what we think deserves attention, what deserves um, allegiance, and what deserves attraction. Attention, attraction, allegiance. Um, uh, there, was, there was one more that, that I just remembered. Attention, attraction, admiration, allegiance. God deserves our full attention. God's holiness, his character, deserves our attraction. He deserves our whole admiration. And he he deserves all of our allegiance. The cross confronts us that a fundamental problem is we don't see the glory of God. That we give things in the world our attention, our attraction, our admiration and allegiance where these things through the cross that exclusively only belongs to God, nobody else, nothing else, that exclusively it is only God. And what Paul gets into with distorted gospels is it gets that arrangement convoluted or distorted or arranged improperly where maybe I get to keep some glory or maybe I get to have admiration from others. Maybe I deserve attraction from others And that's a problem with the Judaizing teachers is trying to maintain those things or take glory where the cross represents all glory to be given to God. So we'll see these things again. These are themes that are going to be expounded on through the letter. But let's get into verses 6 through 10 with the danger of a distorted gospel. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking to fit the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul's approach to the problem, the regional problem in the churches of Galatia, uh, because remember in verse two, or rather, um, at the end of verse two, that this is the churches of Galatia. So this has turned into like a regional problem that had infected multiple congregations. The problem is addressed directly, honestly, and viscerally. And visceral just means like um, it's dealt with in a very emotional way, a very invested way, that Paul is internally invested in this, not disconnected from it. So it's honest, it's direct. Now, when you think about the importance of dealing with a problem so directly and honestly, if something is gray, ambiguous, if there's a covering of deception over things, does that equip you? to be able to analyze and resolve the problem very easily. But if you can deal with things in black and white, now not only can we see the end of a thing clearly, what its conclusion is, but then there's more room for self-examination. Where now I can understand the deeper principles at work here that lead me down this path, that attach me with these false ideas, right? So the point of what Paul's going to get into, this isn't just about God's judgment going on those who teach these things. But what are the more deceptive and subtle personal things that have been at work in the church that led them in this direction? That's what he's going to deal with. That's the context, by the way, of the whole um, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit is if they're giving in to a distorted gospel, changing their attitude about Paul, it's not because they've been investing in the spirit. It's because they've been living by the works of the flesh. So now a a fleshly version of the gospel, it's a natural consequence. Follow along with that, right? So again, this sets the stage for the rest of the letter, but his way of dealing with it is honest and direct. And I think this confronts us with something that we really need to be careful to try to embrace and accept for ourselves. Did you know that the New Testament never gives false teachers the benefit of a doubt? You know, I'll hear, I'll hear people and not try to be judgmental about things, right? But I'll hear people who will admire false teachers in the world because of they like the way they talk, you know, they like the the points they make, the sermons they give and like, "Sure, you can find value, different perspectives, whatever." I, I want to be balanced in it, right? What's worrisome though is is when false teachers are viewed as maybe they're not so bad. It, you know, they're just a little misguided or You know, they're sincere. They're just, ah, they're just missing a couple things. You know, the New Testament writers never talk about false teachers that way, ever. Especially when they at one time had exposure to the truth and knew the truth and had forsaken it. What the New Testament confronts us with, God hates distorted gospel. God hates false teachers. Now, the balance is, Embracing that reality and not just becoming like a curmudgeon, you know, like just a bitter person who like has this horrible lens of the world and horrible lens of others. In Christ, we find proper balance. But again, this is an aspect of our relationship with God that cultivates a Christ-like gospel-centered jealousy. So notice again in verse 8, Paul's not just throwing others under the bus. He's throwing himself under the bus. His point is, like, this isn't just that person who is right now disturbing you with a distorted gospel. If I come back to you and I start teaching you something different, I deserve to be accursed too. The idea is, anybody who gets in God's way with Christ's gospel, with everything that God has done, with Christ having been given up to rescue us, anyone who gets in the way of what God has done deserves divine judgment for distorting what God has done. And false gospels, there's a lot of ways, I think, practically you can think about, well, this looks like a false gospel or this would be an example of a false gospel. I think to summarize it, false gospels bend or distort the reality of the cross and the way that we are called to relate to the cross. And I'm more and more convinced that truth is built on that foundation. And that if someone understands this, that the cross not only represents what God has done for us, but how we ourselves serve God and connect with him fully, everything else, to say it's easy, may be saying too much, but it removes obstacles that I think we see in the world very commonly. Look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Paul just, in this letter, he keeps coming back to the cross, that this distorted gospel is not dealing with the implications of the cross, that the false teachers are not saying, well, Jesus didn't come, Jesus didn't die on the cross, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. They're maintaining those fundamental facts. They would maintain you know, much of Jesus' teaching. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. But it's not dealing with what the cross means for us and who we are called to be through the cross. So chapter 2, 19 through 20. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I live now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So again, Paul is saying what you're doing, Peter, what these Judaizing teachers are doing does not properly represent what the cross means for us and the life that we're called to live through it. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. A lot of these references are at the end of the letter in the last two chapters because, again, when Paul becomes more practical in what he's teaching, it continuously comes back to the cross again and again. Chapter 5, verse 11. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ... Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Chapter 6, verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Really quick right here. The Jewish nation was given special privileges by the Roman government. You know, So the Jews were exempt from needing to like hail Caesar, like pinch incense to Caesar to worship him and acknowledge him, like the Jews were given very unique, very special religious exemption, right? And so if a Jew maintained his Judaism, then he's exempt from being persecuted from the Roman government. But if you mingle too much with the Gentiles, if you separate yourself from your Jewish nation and Jewish practices, if that's no longer your identity, now you're vulnerable to the kind of persecution that Paul and the Christians would suffer through the book of Acts. And Paul, again, he unearthed the more subtle aspects of this is really the reason why these guys are teaching circumcision to you is they just don't want to be persecuted. And by the way, side note, again, things that I think, think that I see more and more is I think that's why things that are very clear in the Bible, like baptism and salvation, the structure of a local church, As soon as you start believing in those things, you become deeply immersed in a hard minority. And you lose a lot of favor from a lot of the religious world and friends you may have. And why is it appealing to deny what the Bible very clearly says? Because you may suffer greater persecution if you let go of those things that stand in the way. Chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians confronts us with what it really means to live a life of faith centered on the reality of the cross. False gospels distort the reality of the cross and the way that we are called to relate to that reality. And another aspect of this, where Paul gets into the breakdown of their relationships, if you look at chapter 5, verse 26, you know, Paul understands there's obviously a problem in his relationship to the Galatians, but in 5.26 he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. You know, so what they believe directly relates to their relationships with one another. And I've put it on the board this way, the way we believe we relate to God, And maybe a better way to say that what we really believe about how we relate to God, it will impact the way we relate to one another. You know, if somebody can't work well with others, if somebody can't invest in a local church, if somebody can't show mercy, if somebody becomes bitter very easily as they're communicating or working with others in the church, the problem is what you believe about God first. And if you fixed what you think about God, and if you understood a lot more clearly and personally what the cross really means for you when you're tempted toward bitterness and frustration, um, strife, jealousy with others, it would bring us back to unity. And so what Paul is dealing with with the Galatians is this false gospel they're believing and the breakdown of their relationship with God is clearly evident in the breakdown of the relationships that they have with one another. And so the severity of the tone, again, isn't just for Paul to point the finger at whoever is teaching them a false gospel, but it's to equip the Galatians to understand how to reflect on themselves, how to better analyze the problem, and it equips us for a clearer, more single-minded devotion to what the gospel truly is. And I want you to think about how important that is in our culture. The reality is we live in a religiously saturated world where concepts like grace are broken. What faith means is extraordinarily shallow. There's biblical illiteracy, illiteracy that is also joined with loud professions of faith. There is claims of devotion to biblical authority, but when the rubber beats the road, that claim, it just falls apart and doesn't measure up. And so we're, we're surrounded by distortions and what can easily happen is we end up overreacting to distortion and then create our own distortions as a result right and oftentimes what I think ends up happening is you know we end up swinging the pendulum where things are no longer being defined in the balance of the gospel and we end up defining things in our own way and creating a system of keeping God's ways that just isn't as simple and pure as what we find in the New Testament Because again, what the Jews were doing was presenting more rules, more strictness. And Paul would say, these extra rules you're putting on are adding on to the simplicity of the gospel, right? So we've got to be careful with being lenient about things that God says, no, there's actually no leniency there. But we also need to be careful of not creating our our own rules as an overreaction and claiming that this way or these rules are the way to be safe about this we can end up then being too strict about things, right? So Galatians helps us have balance in the way that we react to distorted Gospels. And finally, the the Gospel fundamentally ri- liberates us from being enslaved to what people think. And I know that that may sound weird because there is a, a care, obviously, that we ought to have to conscientiousness of others. But again, this, this relates to what Peter did in Antioch, right? Because of the pressure around him, he denied the gospel in his behavior, right? But I want you to look at chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And something that was going on with the Galatians that Paul was aware of, with the Jews who were pressuring them. It's a very manipulative tactic, but it's manipulative in the way where they're trying to get you to care about what they think so that you conform to them. Anyway, chapter 4, 17 17. And 18, they eagerly seek you. And this is the false teachers. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. So verse 17, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that they're they're acting like they're too cool for you, right? Like they're the in-group, and you're not allowed to be a part of, like, the super group of people, the super Christians. And they actually want you to be converted and be a part of their group but not unless you seek after them first and kind of flatter them and and stroke their ego and now you get to be a part of their super group right so Paul's saying this this is not a commendable way to be sought after this this method of social manipulation right this can happen among preachers by the way like there's there's times where it's like you don't dress a certain way or talk a certain way well, you're not allowed in the in crowd, right? You've got you've to look a certain type. You've got to talk a certain type. And it doesn't always happen, right? But it, unfortunately, there, there can be kind of this like air of, uh, I don't know, anyway. We just have to be really careful about that, right? That you've got to look a certain way. You've got to talk a certain way. You've got to look like me. You've got to you know, do the things that I do. And if you don't meet those criteria, then you're not allowed in my little clique, right? I shut you out. So the gospel liberates us. From feeling the need to be pressured by opinion or somebody may cultivate a reputation among brethren and being able to balance, like, I respect them, I appreciate them, but if they teach something beyond what the Bible says or if they're telling me I need to do something for them doctrinally that is not in Scripture, then we need to have the boldness to say, oh, I'm going to stick with the authority of Christ, right? And that applies to me, too, that if I teach something from the pulpit or in conversation that doesn't match with what the Bible says, then I need to be challenged on that, and I need to be corrected on that. The idea is this. The cross represents something about the gospel. That the gospel is a fiercely, painfully corrective message. It is a fiercely, message and painfully corrective message. And that even if there's not this same tone in other letters written to churches, there is still a corrective nature to the word of God. That when God's word is read, taught on, when I remember it, the point isn't to justify me, the point isn't to stroke an ego or make me feel superior, but it's to confront me of my need for god to confront me for my need even to lose more to be closer with him and there's an influence to the gospel and the nature of the cross that isn't accomplished through peer pressure or just accumulation of reputation so again paul was no longer trying to please men or seek their favor but he was willing to teach the truth and stand in the truth even if that meant he needed to confront peter and confronts him openly in front of others so that the purity of the gospel and the center and essence of its message could be preserved. So that's that's where we'll stop in the lesson um, today. So we'll in two weeks, Lord willing, continue on Galatians and see these things built on and played out more. Um, And I hope that the uh, letter will be as encouraging and challenging for you as it has been for me um, as we try to center ourselves more on the cross, adapt that into our behavior, our thinking, and our way of relating to each other much more diligently. If there's anything that we can do for you here this morning, um, if you are not a Christian, think about the most horrendous enslavement that you can think of. And ultimately, that's just a manifestation of what it looks like to be in the dominion of Satan and be enslaved to sin. That there will be a day when what it means to be enslaved to Satan will be fully played out, and that will be the day of judgment and wrath of God. And what God is appealing to us with is the message of the cross. He's offering us liberty on his terms and freedom from captivity to Satan if we will surrender by faith to the message of the gospel and liberation in the cross. If there's anything we can do for you to that end or to encourage your faith in God, we urge you to bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.